Hello, Sobertown listeners. My name is Michael, MMC13 on the I Am Sober app, and it's my pleasure to be coming to you today on behalf of Sobertown and SobertownPodcast.com, your one-stop shop for sobriety. It is so much more than podcasts. I encourage you to check out all the resources available there. Now, let's hop on this sober train and ride. My guest today is Nicholas Nico Morales, a fellow sober warrior who has faced his own adversity and challenges, only to come out on top and now invest his time in helping others to do the same. Nico is the founder of No Halo, which provides personal and professional developmental services, and is also the author of Five Things to Know Before You Get Sober. I can't wait to get to know him a bit better and hear about these resources. Nico, welcome to Sobertown Podcast. Hi, Michael. Thank you. And hi, everybody that's listening. Thank you for joining us. <clears throat> so if you could just start off by telling us a bit about yourself. I understand we're both residents of the land of enchantment here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So are you originally from New Mexico? And can you tell us a little bit about your, your upbringing? Absolutely. Before I jump into that, I just want to say it's always different to have your introduction read that way now, just because of our, our history, our, our shared experience there. I, that part always freaks me out. So I encourage anybody to just like start speaking that stuff over yourself. What would you like people to introduce you by? Not so much as, oh, that's my cousin. Uh, that's my cousin Nico, the drug addict. That's my cousin Nico, the drunk. Like now it's not, that's my cousin Nico, the, the author. Just start talking that over your own life for anybody who's listening and wanting to make a change. But to answer your question, yes, I am born and raised Albuquerque, New Mexico, third generation Burgueno. My dad's dad came from the Bracero program and decided to settle here in Albuquerque. He put his roots down in East San Jose. Then he moved into the Heights, which we got renamed into Midtown. That's where my dad grew up and that's where he raised me. So that's San Mateo, Montgomery area, if you are familiar with Albuquerque. But yeah, I I love this place from the petroglyphs to the Sandias, from the Rat Hole all the way down to the South Valley. I will I will take it. I will take it. But yes, I grew up in a two-parent household. Both my mom and dad were around and present in my life. And from a young age, there was always something different, I should say. That would be the best way to describe it. I have a younger sister and I love her to life. Well, when she was a year old, she got really sick and we were two years apart. So when I was about two years old, I got taken to go spend time with my grandparents because my parents had to focus on my little sister a lot. So that pretty much started to train me in the adult world at a very young age. Like most Hispanics, you know, you're raised by your family or your family's family. That's kind of how it goes. So I got to get raised by my grandma and my papa. And my papa was a lumber foreman. My grandma was the hustler. Like she never worked a day in her life. She made money off of real estate, little side flips that she would do. So I got to spend time with them traveling here between here and Arizona because that's where they were originally from. So from about two to six, I hung out with my grandparents traveling. And I remember vividly eating Lucky Charms out of the box in the front seat of a car with an Archie magazine. That's how they kept me. That's how they kept me occupied. So those are two of my favorite memories growing up, being on the road. I still have the car that we drove in because it's mine now. And yeah, Lucky Charms, I don't eat those as often. On Archie magazines, I'm not reading too much, but those those are the things that I remember growing up. When I was about six, my 
grandpa, my papa died. And so my uh, grandma was like, yo, you got to go start spending time with your parents more. But it was about that time that I needed to go to school anyways. So I started to spend more time with my mom and my dad. The only reason I really speak to that is because there's, for me, there was an underlying issue of abandonment that I didn't uncover until I was like in my late 20s. And when I uncovered that, it gave me so much freedom and so many solutions and so much clarity. So that's why I start there, mainly because psychology says that from age two to seven is when you kind of start to get your mind imprinted. And then from age seven on, you start to develop your own identity. So if you can know what's been imprinted on your mind between those age brackets, then you can start to figure out where your identity came from and then shift it from, if you want to, I should say, there's some people who don't want to shift it. If you don't, that's cool. I needed to shift mine because that was my, that was one of my biggest uh, barriers, obstacles, opportunities to overcome. But from six to, I would say about 14, I had a traditional childhood. I had some uh, adverse childhood experiences, as they like to call them. Trauma is what some other people call them. And I'm sorry. Can I cuss? Is that okay? Please do. Knock yourself. All right. Yeah. I had some fucked up shit happen when I was a kid that, you know, kids should, shouldn't have to experience. But it's life. It's way life through the dice. And I had to play the, I had to play the dice that were in front of me. But I had repressed all of that until I was about 14 years old. And then when I was 14, a lot of those memories started to come back and I had to start to process them. One of the ways that I processed them was through athletics. I started wrestling when I was seven years old and that was my outlet. I didn't know how to express myself verbally. I didn't know how to communicate with words, what was going on inside of my mind. I didn't know how to talk about these things that were making my stomach turn, making my chest hurt, uh, making me want to just pull out my hair, um, grind my teeth. I didn't know how to uh, talk about it, but when I was wrestling, it made my brain function better. It, it allowed me, that exercise allowed me to kind of process things in a different way. And then I got to beat up on people. It was always fun to like pin someone to the ground and choke them out. When you start seeing their eyes kind of change colors and they're dilate and they're scared. For me, that always made me feel like, oh, wow, it's messed up. But it's, <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, you're feeling the way that I feel inside. So it was a way to kind of express that to somebody. And I was pretty decent from seven until 17. I wrestled. That was my, that was my outlet. That was my, that was my go-to. That was my way to kind of smooth out my brain. Right about that teenage time frame is when I became much more rebellious than I think most teenagers are. I wanted to drop out of school when I was a freshman in high school. I was done with school. I had already Work to job you too, Michael. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, already... I don't know if it's a common theme among a lot of us who struggle with addiction, but I'm I'm pretty sure we were all adults by like 12. You know, so yeah, same thing. I I will I did actually drop out of high school by the time I was 16, and I was trying to be emancipated from my parents at the same time. And I, my parents were lovely. There was, I had zero excuse. The judge pretty much laughed me out of court. It's like, you have a loving, supportive family. Do you know how many kids would kill for this? Like, no, I'm, I'm not emancipating you because you think you're an adult now. So I get yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that's the key word, think, think you're an adult. So at 14, I was already working a construction job. 
a gopher on a construction site. So that, you know, fueled the theory that I can hang out with men all day. I could be a man myself. And all I saw them do was work and then chill. Some of them would drink beer after work. Some of them would smoke some cannabis after work. And then I'd ask them what they did the night before they went home to my family. And now I'm here again. Let's, let's get to work. So I had formulated this idea that that's all adults team was. My family, like yours, was very loving, very caring. My dad was a provider. My mom did her thing. She worked. But that's all I saw was people working. So I was like, well, if that's what adulting is, then let me just start doing it now. You know, might as well get to it. But the foreman and my mom, the foreman was my uncle. My uncle gave me a job. Just like most Mexicans, if you got an uncle that has a company, he'll probably hire you. Uh, pay you underneath the table and that's how it works so that's that's what i got that's how i got introduced to it and he said i was a good worker so he was he was cool with me continuing to work my mom wasn't my mom wanted me to finish school so she went and told him that he needs to fire me and like most guys they're not gonna go against a mama bear you know be like yeah well he, t- <laughs> he told me straight up your mom said i need to fire you but just fyi you can work for me on the summers. You got a job because you got a good work ethic. Cool. So that's the case. You're going to fire me. I might as well go back to school because that's what my mom wanted me to do. And then they reminded me that if I went to school, then I could wrestle. I was like, oh, yeah, that's 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 a plus, too. I guess that would be one reason to go back to school because you ain't going to teach me anything at school, right? I didn't need math. I didn't need writing. I didn't need science. Some of these things that kind of benefited me later on in life. So I went back to school and I was transferred from one school to the next because some trouble that I got into. One of the wrestling coaches at my high school, she told my mom that I was hanging around with the wrong crowd. Um, Essentially, they were gang members that I was hanging around with and we were smoking weed, causing trouble, getting into fights. And he was like, yeah, you should probably move him schools. You should get him out of this environment. So they... Moved me from one school to the next. And really what they did, they just put me in a school where I knew more people. Because I knew more people, got covered up more. I was never in a gang myself. I never understood that concept. But those individuals were some of the most genuine and authentic individuals to be around. And that's what attracted me to it. Um, That's really where I was just like, oh, you guys aren't like the church people that I'm around all the time. Who do one thing on Sunday and then Tuesday Wednesday and Thursday, you're doing opposite things. I was very much attracted to just that genuine, authentic, this is who I am, and I don't care what you think. And so because of that attraction, you know, I I enjoyed being in their presence more than anybody else's presence. This other school that I went to, most of my cousins went to too. So essentially, I had more cover-ups than anything else. I was less covered up at a school that I didn't know people at. But the homies' moms worked there, so I remember getting passes to leave class, to leave school, because one of them was a counselor. I was like, oh, this is easy. Like, all I got to do is just know people. Let's go ahead and get it done. And I had this entrepreneurial spirit. I think that's another common trait amongst most individuals who have some sort of substance use addicts, is that we have this, I can go get it done mentality. You know, show me the problem and I'm going to solve it. I'm not going to miss out. So I'm going to figure out a way to be around people. I don't want to change. So I'm going to find something very constant in my life. And that might just be the substance. Or it's going to be, hey, you know what? All you guys are wrong. I'm right. So I'm going to keep on doing what I'm going to do. 
And from a young age, I learned how to earn money on my own. When I first started kind of my entrepreneurial journey, I think I was like 10 and my dad was having me clean yards. And then I learned that he was keeping the cash for himself. <laughs> my mom got on him for that. And eventually he started paying me a little bit of, of money that was earned. Uh, but he was like, yeah, I got you the job. So I took a cut. <laughs> All right, cool. Uh, so I, I understood what bringing value to other people meant, right? I understood that if you could solve a problem for someone else, you could get someone what they can't get on their own, then you could earn money. And at school, one of the things that was very popular was prime times, the small little cigars. And so I had this older homie and I pay him to go buy me a couple packs because I saved my lunch money from a whole week. I was a wrestler, so didn't eat, you know, so I just had extra cash couple bucks my parents would give me for treats for lunch money and so i just saved that for a whole week next week i gave it to him and he bought me a few packs of prime times and i started selling them individually and i made some money i was like cool so i repeated the process and then one of the homies told me hey nico saw you selling prime times you want to sell some bud and at the time it was swag it pressed on cd smelled like gasoline but we thought we were bad and so I was like, yeah, might as well. How do I make this into money? He's like, show me the grams, show me how to break the grams up into blunts and then how to sell the blunts. So I was like, oh, this is the same thing. No problem. Just a different product. Cool. And that's how I got introduced to moving narcotics. I just progressively got into different products. That's how I saw it. So by the time I was 17, I had a full ride wrestling scholarship to Northern Colorado University because I learned that as long as I did good at wrestling and I had decent grades, people would leave me alone. And if people left me alone, then I could do whatever the heck I wanted to do on the side. And because I was working over the summer, I was earning income there, I would save it and then I would use it during the school year to earn income during the school year by moving some sort of narcotic. But by 17, I thought I had figured out the whole world. I had a big ego. I thought I figured out everything and I was ready to, to take it on, you know, but I still had to dealt with some of my issues. And not that you're supposed to at that age, but you should start to kind of understand that maybe there's something really different about you because everybody else doesn't need this stuff like you do. Like you need it. Like it solves your problems. When you don't have it, you freak out. That's, that was a big indicator for me. The homies would be like, oh yeah, we're going to this party. Cool. Who's got the butt? Oh, we don't. We can't take butt here. All right. Well, I'm not going then. <laughs> they don't want to drink, and at the time, I I didn't like alcohol, so I was like, oh, you guys can go drink. That's fine. As long as I can smoke weed, I'll drive you guys. Like I don't care. But if I can't smoke my weed, then I'm done. I'm not going. And if I can't sell drugs there, then what the, what's the point? And around this time, it's 2007, 2008. Pills really started to influence the market a lot. So Xanax, Percocets, Oxycontin were all popular pills. And I learned how to get a hold of those because, you know, some people like certain narcotics, other people like other narcotics. So if you have a variety for everybody, then they can all pick and you make, earn more money. And so I had some cocaine, I had cannabis and I had pills. Those were my three main products. And I, I earned enough money that I was really self-sufficient i didn't really have to ask for too much and by no means when i say self-sufficient i mean like a 17 year old thinks they're self-sufficient 
Well, didn't have the mansion and the car yet, or yeah, not yet. I was on track though. You know, I was on track to get the giraffe from my backyard. That's so. right. <laughs> but about that time frame is really when I had the mental unrest that caused life impact, and that's something that you know I I be, I'm very insightful on because I ran away from home at that time. Nobody would listen to Nico. Nobody would understand Nico. Everybody just thought Nico was being a rebellious young kid and there was something else. And again, I couldn't communicate it. I didn't have the words to express, you know what? I had this traumatic event happen to me and I can't get those thoughts out of my head. They repeat constantly. Can someone help me stop this stuff? Like, cause it hurts my brain. And the only way I know how to get this brain hurt away is by using some sort of narcotic. And because I couldn't communicate that fact, that just one little sentence there, I was lashing out in every other way that I could. Because it was it was like I was suffocating in my brain. And the only time I could catch a breath was when I was using a substance. But nobody understood that. Nobody seemed to grasp that portion because, again, I couldn't express it to anybody. And I'm sure that if I had been able to communicate that, say that I'm having a problem because of X, Y, and Z, then someone would have been like, oh, yeah, here's what we should do. Because one thing I want to share with everybody is that you're not the first one to face the problem. And you're not the only one to face the problem. There's other people. And so if you can find a community of individuals who have faced that problem or similar ones, then they can share the resources that they've already come up with because that is super important. Um, even you're just relating it to sports, you have a coach who knows the sport and teaches the skills. It's the same concept for these communities, the recovery community, the same concept. There's somebody who's walked the path before you and can tell you where the landmines are at and can tell you, hey, this is how you walk this path. This is what you do. And having those type of communities is super important. Agree. Um, we say that we we say around Sobertown a lot, connection beats addiction. And that's exactly what we're talking about. It is so hard for people to get sober on their own, like having that connected community, other people who have been here, they can say, hey, I've been where you are. This is how I got out of it. Let me show you what I did. And you can see if it works for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's it. I love that connection beats addiction. That's wonderful. And the other side of it is that connection requires accountability. And that's the other factor that I think is super important to beating any type of addiction. If I know some of the some of the things that I've heard is that you have to you have to acknowledge where you're at. You have to say it. You have to be accountable to yourself first of all. You can't lie to yourself, but also opening up and being vulnerable and accountable to someone else. I know that in some of the groups or types of recovery programs, they have sponsors, right? Like that's something that I've heard. Well, the only reason why you have a sponsor is somebody that can keep you accountable. In the personal development realm, the realm that I like to function in the best, we call them accountability partners. Every two weeks, I meet with somebody on a Thursday, and we have a conversation of where we're at. Every Sunday, I'm meeting with somebody, and we're having a conversation of where we're at. Saturday mornings, there's a group accountability call, and we're all just keeping track of where we're at and talking to each other um, because the more minds, the more problems we can solve, the more perspectives you can get. And it's the same thing for this type of issue. Addiction is a problem. If you want to call it a disease, I support you in calling that too, but you need a 
a community that can help you heal that disease. And the choice to go after that community is completely up to you. The choice to be vulnerable and share it and have the accountability, whether with medical professionals, non-medical professionals, traditional, non-traditional, religious, non-religious, it's, it's the accountability that you really need as well as a community that you really need. And that's what I boiled it down to. Uh, the opposite end is very true too. The <laughs> accountability groups that I had around me at 17 to 20, it was, hey, Nico, what kind of drugs you got? How much money did you make this week? And that was a community that I was around, you know? We were earning money. How many girls did you get this week? How much partying did you do? How many beefs did you start? How many beefs did you stop? Like that was the accountability that I had. And that was the community that I was a part of. Who has the most hundred dollar bills this week? Who earned the most money? Who's getting the new car? Who just put a new system in their, in their car? Like who got the new shoes? Who got the new CD? That was the accountability and community that I was around. So of course that was the environment that I participated in and perpetuated. That's what I permitted. So that's what I promoted. And if you don't, all the time, that's one of my favorite sayings, which you permit, you promote. Absolutely. So how did you get from someone who was struggling with addiction to, to where you are today? What, what sort of pointed you towards recovery and what did your recovery look like? Pointed me to recovery was wondering why the heck I was still around when everybody else around me wasn't. Um, There was time where I just saw death after death people around me using less than I was using. At the height of my addiction, I was 22 years old, slamming IV injection of heroin, 60 cc's every two hours just to stay well. That's just to avoid any type of withdrawals. And it didn't, I mean, that one I cut off when I was 22, but I didn't deal with all my issues. So I struggled with addiction to alcohol after that until I was 27. I was drinking two bottles a day, drinking a half pint just to wake up and stay uh, coherent without going into the tremors, the shakes and freaking out, having a seizure. But just seeing so many people around me pass away and wondering why the heck I'm still around. That's what really drove me to recovery. That's what really drove me into this path of, you know what, there's got to be a different way of living than this. There has to be. And Michael, I'm sure that you know this. In the land of enchantment, we have a high poverty rate and a low education. So for the majority of the examples around you, it's normal to see somebody who participates in some sort of vice, whether it's alcohol and drugs is one, but there's also food. Then there's also sex. Then there's all these other vices that people are participating in. So when you see that and people are telling you, hey, your vice is bad, look at their vice, it's like, well, what do you mean my vice is bad? It's just, at least, at least mine is a track mark on my arm and a freaking stink on my breath. Yours is ruining not just your life, but other people's lives too, because you can't keep your pants closed. You know, like you, you can't keep your food from out of your mouth. So like, what what is it that you can judge me for? And I was really striving to find somebody that could resemble an ideal life that I looked for. And that's what drove me into recovery was I found somebody. I found somebody that I admired that was living with one relationship. They were super wealthy because that was one of the other big drivers for most of my decisions was money. 
And for me, I'm a, I'm a spiritual person. So they had a relationship with Jesus. And with that, I was like, oh, shoot, there, there's actually people out there like that. And when I saw that example, it encouraged me to do my best to live to that standard as well. So once the standard was set, I saw somebody that was able to do it. I had to achieve it. I, I had to. Just like when I saw a standard of the previous lifestyle, somebody had a new whip, a new car, they have more drugs than I do. I had to achieve that standard. It's just innately inside of me, that competitive nature is inside of me that I have to do it. If someone else can do it, then I can do it too. And so when I saw these individuals and I got exposed to individuals who were participating in positive lifestyles, living whole lives, not hurting themselves, not hurting the community that they were in and actually helping, that, that fueled my flame. And that was like, yo, you, you can do this for your people. You can do this for the people that you're around. And that really set me on fire for the recovery of, of a new life. I struggle with the word recovery just because there's a lot of things that I don't want to recover in my own life. There's, there's not like when, when I heard somebody describe recovery to me, they're like, Oh, you want to go back to your original form? And I'm like, no, heck no, I don't. What I do want to recover is a new life that I was supposed to have that I'd never been experienced to. And so for me, I, I approach it as a personal development since I've never had it. I get to develop into this individual who can. And if I repeat those days, then those days are the ones that I want to recover. Those are days that I want to repeat. Those are days that I want to share with other people. And that's what really shifted my mindset. And so I found myself two times homeless, uh, two times being abandoned by my family with alcohol and drugs. Nobody wanted to be around Nico. The homies that I had didn't want to be around Nico. And I was left with just like, well, you're the only one that's there for you. And you don't even want to be around yourself. So let's, let's start correcting this. And what my path looked like was very much a spiritual path. I grew up around the church, but I didn't like church people. Like I, I couldn't stand them. So there's a book, it's called The Bible. And I grabbed it and I started reading it. And I was like, let me just read this for what it is. And I started talking to the creator. And I was like, huh, okay, you actually are real. Some of the things that I talked to you about are past. And for each, everybody, that's the beautiful part about America, everybody in this country, we get to choose our own belief systems. But one thing that I learned in my own journey of searching and finding is that we all have a muscle of faith. And that faith muscle, whatever you place it in, it gets exercised. Now, how you exercise it is completely up to you. I'm not going to press that on anybody. But for me, I exercise it through Jesus. Like, well, if you are so real, then let me go ahead and put this in your hands too. Let's see what you do with it. And he does something with it. And I'm like, holy cow, blown away. All right, well, let me try this then. Right, and I put that in his hands and all of a sudden it changes. And so little by little, I started exercising that, that faith muscle. I started developing it. And for me, it was in Jesus. And I found myself at the very end, drinking two bottles a day, living in a building that didn't have any type of utilities other than electricity. It was my grandma's old house. Like the family was like, Nico, we can't have you around us, but you can go stay at your grandma's house. And there was something just about being in her presence again. Cause at this time it was like 20 years since she had passed. And I was like, well, if grandma was here, how would you be acting? And I started to just play these, these scenarios in my head. 
And I started to change the way that I acted little by little. And each and every day, it was something different. So it would be, you know what? You're not going to drink until two hours after you get up. And that's what I did. I, I kept my word to myself. I wouldn't drink until two hours after I got up. Then that two hours moved into four hours. And then that four hours turned into eight hours. That eight hours turned into 10 hours. 10 hours turned into a whole day because I was only up for 12 hours in a day. So I made it one whole day without drinking. And it was amazing. It was so freeing. And so I was like, let me see if I can just do maybe two days. Maybe I see if I can do a day and a half at least. So I started to challenge myself that way. And um, I did the same thing with heroin. You know, you're just not going to use. Just don't use for today. What would somebody who didn't do drugs do? So I thought about walking. What if they go for walks? So I go take a walk. Um, and I found these little tricks through trial and error. So I was able to put a system together. And my system basically was act like the person that you want to be like. That was the first thing. Imagine the person that you would admire and act like them. And then actually do the actions and only tell yourself what you're going to do. Don't break your own self-trust. Because if you break your self-trust, that's really where you start to slip. And so little by little, I just do these things. Finally, I was in a place where my family was willing to be around me. They're like, cool. Yeah, we can, we can spend time with you again. You're, you're in a different place. And that was encouraging. I had these... I still wasn't going to any type of church, but this guy, Dr. Eric Thomas, his name's E.T., the hip hop preacher. He had a podcast and it came out every Thursday. So I'd wait until Sunday and I'd use that as my church time. And I sit there and I listen to the podcast. It's like an hour long. And I take one thing from the podcast and I apply it to my life. And he's a personal development guru. And I just apply it little by little. I saw my life transform. So it shifted from just this horrible not wanting to be with myself to this beautiful like I love myself because I love myself I'm going to take care of myself in the best way because I'm going to take care of myself in the best way I can imagine a better version of myself and because I can imagine a better version of myself I can start to act like that version now and then that version started to come true so I was able to work on you know my personal life what is it that still throws you off? What are your insecurities? What are your triggers? What is it that really makes you feel uneasy? And how do you, can you work on those? Started working on my finances because <laughs> finances are important and I wasn't the best at them at the time of addiction. So I started working on my finances and understanding financial literacy, understanding what an asset was, what a liability was. And that changed the game for me personally too. I was like, shoot, you're a liability to most your people because no one can, no one can rely on you. Turn into an asset yourself so that you can produce things for other people. And I started working on my spiritual health, my mental health, my physical health. And I just started focusing on these different areas. And as I built them, things started to work out. That house that I lived in at the time, it was just a mattress, a hot plate, and a TV. And by the time I was done with it, it was a full living room that the family was coming over to have make the males in. Like I had a bedroom that was actually a bedroom. It wasn't just a, a dope den. It wasn't where I was hiding my bottles. You know, I was spending time around my family and enjoying them. And it was a place that, hey, Nico, can we come over? And he was like, yeah, come over. I don't have to hide anything. I don't have to spray anything. Go for it. Uh, 
and it was just beautiful. I laid new tile inside the house. It was just this whole metamorphosis of changing, not just who I was, but watching how me changing who I was changed the environments that I was in and the people that I was around. And then the jobs that I had, the time I was working at a call center, people were looking at me like, Nico, something's changed with you. What is it? And that gave me an opportunity to share, like, look, you know, I used to be over drinking. I used to show up to work drunk, quite honestly. Now I don't. So that's one of the first changes that you guys probably notice. That's <laughs> my smell and my slurring isn't there anymore. <laughs> Second change is like, I'm able to think coherently. I'm able to make decisions from the person that I want to be, not from the person that I am. And that just gave opportunities for others to share their stories and struggles with me. Uh, people would be like, oh, well, I struggle with this. Cool. Here's a way that you can kind of navigate it because that's how I navigated it and sharing my own lived experience on how I did it with the receipts of how I'm living now gave people hope. And so I started learning like, oh, shoot, your job is to inspire people now. Your job is to motivate people now. Your job is to take this knowledge that you have and transform it into tangible stuff other people can receive. So I came up with the acronym. I was like, you got to sip the right tea. And they just look at me like, what? I was like, you got to sip the right tea. Your thoughts create your emotions. Your emotions create your actions. T-E-A. So what are you thinking? And how does that make you feel? And then what does that make you do? And people would start to realize, oh, shoot. My thoughts are what's really driving all of my emotions. And those emotions create my actions. I'm like, yes. So if that's what's causing your actions, then reverse the whole Reverse engineer the whole thing. Change what you're feeling. How do you change what you're feeling? Well, you change that by what you're thinking. So can you think of yourself differently? And people started using it. And it wasn't just individuals who struggled with substances. Now there was these old men that were taking pills for their doctor. And they're like, what? It makes me feel like I'm old. Cool. Well, why do you feel like you're old? They're like, because only old people take pills. I was like, first of all, that's not true. I'll tell you that. But why don't you start thinking about it as it's how you're going to stay young. It's pro prolonging your, your, your youth, your life here. And these old men were like, oh, shoot. Hey, Nico, I did that for a week and I feel awesome. I don't feel sick anymore. I'm like, I guess I got something. I, I guess I stumbled on something that I need to share with some people. And so that's when I started promoting this personal development through No Halo because I was tired of people saying, oh, he's an angel for helping me out. I remember hearing these theas of young men that I was helping out. You're such an angel. You're such an angel for what you're doing. I'm like, heck, no, I'm not. You guys knew my actual background, my history. I don't know, document what I've done. You guys would not call me an angel whatsoever. So if you are going to, then say that I don't have a halo, at least. Say that you're an angel without a halo. And that's how the no halo came about. Like, yes, you could call me an angel because of what I'm doing now. But the reality is I messed up thousands of times i've hurt other people so i by no means can i be used as that definition but what i can do is i can take all of my history all of my past and i can direct it towards promoting and helping other individuals and so i started making videos and i started going into these treatment centers and i started helping individuals and there was a common question that i heard all the time and that common question was how did you start right what was it? How did you how did you get to where you're at? And Michael, 
I was pretty selfish and I got tired of telling people that. So that's why I wrote the book. <laughs> I was like, here, I'll write it out for everybody. <laughs> the five things you need to know before you start, because I'm tired of telling everybody this stuff. And so the five things to know that I believe someone should know before they even start is that it's a choice. Like I said earlier, however you want to perceive it as a, a moral issue, as a addiction, imbalance in your head, as an actual disease, it's a choice to address whatever that approach is. Whatever perspective it is, you have a choice to either ignore it or to address it. And we live in the day and age of information. So if you choose to ignore it, that's a choice that you're making. If you choose to uh, address it, that's a choice that you're making too. So the first thing is you got to make a choice. Second thing, super uncomfortable. Like, it's super uncomfortable. Withdrawals, yeah, they suck. The heroin withdrawals, they made me feel like I was going to die. Like my bones were like creeping out of my skin, the chills, ugh, all that stuff. The alcohol withdrawals almost killed me. I remember waking up in the hospital one day because I had a seizure, I guess, at my place of employment. And I woke up and I was in my own fe fecal matter. And I was like, oh, my. That only happens when someone dies. Like, that's that's what happens. And having to buzz in a nurse and be like, look, this is what I shit myself. That, that was horrible. And alcohol almost killed me a few different times. Those withdrawals almost killed me. So I strongly suggest seeing a medical, medical assistant for that. Because I did it and it was way worse. It was way worse. But once you get through the uncomfortable stage, you got to know that you're going to get to know yourself. That's, that's the third thing. You're going to get to know who you truly are, like what your likes are, what your dislikes are, because they're not the same. The intoxicated version of you and the non-intoxicated version of you, they're not the same people at all. And so you get to know yourself. The fourth one that I think people should know before they even start is that you're going to be vulnerable during this transition because it's a transition. It's really a metamorphosis, not just physically, but mentally. When I was on heroin, I weighed 120 pounds wet. And that was slamming IV injection. When I was drinking, I weighed 260 pounds because I had a lot of bloating going on. I was huge. So like even just the physical transformation is you got to be vulnerable with yourself. The mental transformation, the spiritual transformation. I believe that we are spiritual beings living in a physical body who have a logical mind. That's my personal belief. So if those are the three aspects, then you get to choose which one is the driver. And for most people in addiction that I've seen, the physical drives the logic and overrides the spirit. There's a stage that you go through, I believe, where your logic starts to override your physical and your spiritual is kind of just hanging out in the neutral zone. Then there's a final stage that I think everybody should learn to love to live from, and that's where your spirit drives your logic and controls your body. And that's that when you get to that stage, it's so amazing that your spirit is just vibrating into the rest of the world and people can feel you and your spirit. It's just an amazing feeling. And then the fifth one, well, people can go get the book to get the fifth topic. I'll say that. But if you want to know what the fifth one is, you can go get the book. But that one is, is an amazing step. And that's what I think people should know before they get sober. And again, I wrote that book because I was tired of explaining 
those things to people, right? Now I can do it in a matter of two minutes. But when I first started, it was like, oh, we got to sit down for like an hour so I could kind of break this stuff down to you. And that's how I got to the book. That's how I started promoting this because I have a duty now. Like, I can't be a liability to my community. And I'm a liability to my community if I don't share a solution that I know I have. Like, that's selfish. That's, that's the epitome of being selfish is having this solution, not sharing it with anybody that I know needs the help, two, wants the help, and three, has already asked me to not make myself available as being a selfish human being. And that I can't be. So that's how I got directed into the path of recovery and kind of how I did my recovery. It was alternative, I guess, is what I've heard some people describe it because I didn't go to church. I just started reading the Bible. I started having a relationship with, with Jesus. I didn't go to rehab. I was blessed enough to like not go to jail. I've been detained a few different times on some stupid things, but I had some decent characters around me who always taught me save some cash because you're going to need a lawyer in this lifestyle. And I saved some cash and I had some lawyers around because that it, it was part of the game. You know, it's just like a chef. You're going to get cut cooking some sort of meal. It, it, it was part of the journey. And so now my goal is just to help people first personally develop because that's what I love. Waking up and knowing that you can be a new version of yourself, that you got this day. It's not that you have to do this day, that you can get this day. And that you get to make time and space and you get to impact history in some sort of way, how are you going to do that? That's your personal development. And then professionally, I think that, like I said, in New Mexico, we have specifically uh, low income, I'm sorry, high poverty, low education. So that professional development is a gap that needs to be filled here. How do you self-manage? How, how do you make sure that you're your, the first supervisor that you need to respond to is yourself? How do you do that? Like, how do you do time management? How do you communicate things? How do you lead yourself, lead a team? And so that's what I love doing. And I'm sure that you could relate to this. Actually, I'd love to get your opinion on this. Uh, from New Mexico, we don't listen to too many people. Like, if, if you're not from here, why do I need to listen to you? Because you don't know. You don't know. And so that's, that's where I feel like I could step in. I've made these strides when I was working for the organizations and call centers, like I was able to move into different roles without taking titles. Like that was one of my favorite things to do is do what the bosses did without having a boss's title. Because then I didn't have the responsibility, honestly. I can tell people like, look, you're messing up, bro. You fucked up this way. This is how you could do it differently. And this is how I would do it. And the bosses were like, Nico, thank you. Cause we need somebody that can speak their language and speak our language. And I tell my boss, oh, yeah, talk their language to them, the managerial stuff. Here you go. So being that bridge made me so happy. And I translated all of that, those skills, into this organization that I run now. And that's what we do in my organization. We help people develop professionally, develop personally. And my thought process is I was so willing to spend hundreds of dollars on dope every day. Like I did the average, I would do like four oxys in a day. And I, I, I'm a low ball at 60 bucks. Usually they go for 80, but if you buy enough from 60 bucks and that's, if you're not selling them, that's not what I got at cost for me, but 60 bucks was the average fair market value. It's the term, I guess. Four of those, that's $240 a day. I was using three grams of heroin. 
right? At 60 bucks a gram, that's $180 a day. How come I couldn't put that same type of effort and funds into myself? And so that guy, ET, that I talked about earlier, I found programs that he had and I started buying them myself and I started investing them into myself. I was like, people are paying for school. I don't like education like that, but I'll go. I love to learn. So I found programs and coaches and mentors that were willing to help me out. And yeah, I had to pay them, but the return on the investment was so much more because the guy that published my book, he didn't just publish my book. He taught me how to be a publisher. So there is a skill set now that I can bring back to my community because we're a closed community. Like, unless you're from New Mexico, they ain't going to listen to you. Unless you can talk that much every once in a while and you know how to go from Isan said to Rio Rancho, you know how to move from the South Valley to the Heights and have that vocabulary change, not changing who you are, but just that vocabulary change. Man, it's opened up so many doors. And I know our people need it. And so for me, that's the biggest driver is to help this community because we have the most beautiful people here in New Mexico. Albuquerque is older than the United States. Like 1706 is where we were founded. The United States wasn't even a formed colony then. So like we are a different breed. We are a beautiful breed. And we, I need our people to start standing up. And so that's for me, my biggest passion. Love it, Nico. That's it's fabulous to hear the passion of, of another New Mexican. And and New Mexico gets a bit of a bad name because, because of our level of poverty, because of the low education, we do struggle a lot with homelessness and crime and, you know, a lot of those things. But it's when you have an insider's perspective on what's happening and what's driving those things, the fact that we don't have enough access to mental health resources, to recovery and addiction support, you know, it it just, it explains so much the why behind where we are uh, today. And there's so much judgment and, and, you know, criticism and blame placed on the addict which is another thing that I'm very passionate about changing the perspective on like, let's, let's stop blaming the addict and blame the addictive substance. You know, anybody can, can suffer from addiction. And like you mentioned earlier on addiction doesn't necessarily mean just substances. So many people struggle with addiction that don't even recognize that it's a part of their life. So it's, it's all about opening the conversation, opening the eyes, trying to make those changes. Another thing you touched on that I think is really brilliant is that there's really no no one right way to do this. And that's kind of a thing about Sobertown and the I Am Sober platform. We all are very open to whatever method works for a person is the right method. I, you know, I don't believe that there's one path to recovery. It's as individual as every person who struggles with addiction. And those who do the 12 step programs, I am, you know, I applaud them. I'm happy for them. That's what works for you. Fabulous. For me, like I said earlier, the number one thing for me is that I remain connected to a community of individuals who have, who have been where I am. I remain transparent, open, honest about what I'm struggling with, when I'm struggling, when I'm having a craving, because they, these are people that can help talk me through that and remind me where I've been, that I don't want to go back there. So there's a whole lot of, whole lot of growth and inspiration and hope in that message. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that accountability and community, like if, if the bare minimum, if anybody is searching for help right now, get those two things, like get those two things, a community and accountability, because that can shift your life in so many different ways. 
I heard a phrase that I really love, and it uh, says that a person who is accountable, accountable to no one is a person that can be trusted by no one. That's, that's what it boils down to. If you're not willing to share your problems, because everybody has them, and in a safe community with safe people who aren't going to use them against you, and I think that's one of the struggles. So having these communities that are available right now that aren't going to throw it back in your face, right? Because you want to confide in your partner, let's say that. And I've been in the situation, I confided in my partner, I, you know, I overdrink, and she was like, yeah, well, that's why we have all these issues because you drink too much. It's not like, it's like, yo, don't be throwing that right back in my face. But to have a community that's like, you know what, Nico, we understand. We understand. Now it can be impacting your relationships, but it's definitely not the go-to first swing every time that you're having a fight. No. Well, the fight was about freaking making the bed. What does the drinking have to do with making the bed? Like, and that comes back to that stigma, right? People are afraid to talk about their addiction because when you have confronted people, when you have tried to put your trust in people to talk about it, we've faced those reactions over and over again, the shaming and the guilt. And that's where connecting with people who have been there before and who say, I get why you drank. You know, I know that you're ashamed of what you did last night, but it's okay. We love you anyways. We understand, you know, we're here to help you. That's that's where the magic happens is, you know, dragging that shame out into the light of day. Shame cannot exist, you know, under under inspection of sunlight. Absolutely. And I think what you just said there is so impactful because you become grateful for those communities. And that grateful emotion trumps all these other emotions. That gratefulness, like, man, I just shared one of my biggest mistakes with somebody and I'm, they didn't judge me. That just automatically shifts you into a grateful attitude. And that gratefulness shifts your mindset. It shifts your, your, your physics. It shifts something inside of you that you just want to do it again. Like you don't want to mess up again, but you want to be grateful. And that gratitude is what is what will change change so many minds. I agree. Incredibly powerful tool. Yeah. Well, Nico, this has been wonderful. I've absolutely enjoyed having you on the show. I appreciate your time, your spirit, your energy. I, I am confident in saying you are a blessing to, to the residents of New Mexico. And you're providing a wonderful service, Halo or not. Um, <laughs> is there Thank anything you. else that you would like to to leave our listeners with before we close uh, if you don't mind if i can just plug in where they can find me at um Please that'd do. be all right of course cool our website is www.nohalonm.com i have different types of programs some do-it-yourself programs do-it-with-you programs some do-it-for-you programs where basically I, I write out your plan if you're just looking for some videos, I am on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook at No Halo NM. And then they recently had me open up a TikTok and I got that down too. I'm not a big fan of social media, but it's a way to communicate these messages. So that's what uh, we use it for. TikTok is for at Nico two underscores Morales. But yeah, please reach out. I'd love to, if anything that I said connected with you and you just want to expand on it more, I have plenty of free sessions that I give out. Let's sit down, let's talk because the goal is to help you because you, if you got breath today, you're a valuable person and you have a purpose. My catchphrase is that you're not supposed to be a perfect little angel. You are supposed to do better today. So let's figure out a way to do that. Love it. 
Yep. The only person you need to compete with is the person you were yesterday, right? That's all it is. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Nico. It's been a pleasure getting to know you today. Absolutely. Thank you.